Hey, hey, Changemaker, welcome to Rethink Social Change Podcast, a show dedicated to helping social change practitioners improve the way they make change happen to achieve tangible and sustained impact. I'm your host, Ratiba Sharif. I've worked with some of the world's leading social change organizations for more than two decades on four continents to help them design better projects, learn from them, and measure their results. Using Rethink Social Change cards, I will challenge changemakers like yourself to share their experience on what worked, what didn't, and why in a very unique way. I will shuffle the deck of 54 Rethink Social Change cards and randomly draw four cards that will guide our conversation. So if you're ready for unscripted, jargon-free stories from the field, let's dive into today's episode. He's navigated the complex landscape of international development for close to two decades, designing and measuring the results of social change. Jérôme Health is a senior consultant at Inomer, not just an evaluation expert, he's really a storyteller of impact in fields ranging from peace building to governance, uh, but also migration, poverty reduction, and more recently, science, technology, and innovation. With 50 evaluation and research studies under his belt, Jérôme skillfully uses both qualitative and quantitative methods to unpack and understand projects implemented across Africa. He recently worked on evaluations of studies for the Human Development Innovation Funds of UNDP, a technology needs assessment in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and the UNESCO Government of Flanders Trust Fund for the support of UNESCO's activities in the field of science. Let's see where today's cards will take our conversation. Let's bring him in. Hi, Jérôme. Thanks for joining me. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. All right, so we are going to be drawing some cards and let's see where these cards uh, take us. I did a short guest intro just before you joined me. And uh, what have you been working on recently? Anything well, exciting? Well, I've been working with, uh, yeah, with a, um, a consultancy uh, based in Paris uh, called Inomer. And uh, it's a company that is specialized in uh, evaluation and uh, innovation. So lately, in the past uh, two years, I've been working with a UN agency, World Bank, uh, to do evaluation of the program or t- and to assess uh, research institutes uh, and also evaluate programs related to innovation, related to STI policies at the national level. Excellent. Okay. All right. So I got some cards here and I'm going to, these I'm going to show you. I'm just going to draw another card that I'll bring out into the conversation later on. I won't, I won't give it to you uh, to show you right now, but let's see. Okay. All right. So your cards are, let's see, (laughs) the historical context. Okay. So this is talking about historical narratives, significant events, things like that. Change at individual level. So when we try to bring about change at individual level in terms of knowledge, skills, attitudes, behaviors, things like that. And the last one is efficiency. Is it efficient? Okay. So you can speak to the three cards. If an idea came, starts to emerge, you can use just two cards to focus on based on experience. And then we'll see how it advances and we can add other, other cards into the process. Does this uh, trigger any thoughts? Does it remind you of any project that you worked on? Yeah. yeah well, actually, evaluation that you conducted? 
Yeah, those three concepts actually relate a lot uh, with, you know, the work I've been doing uh, related to designing projects and programs related to evaluation of this program, because efficiency is one of the criteria we, you know, commonly use. It's like quite common to use that uh, criterion for evaluation of programs. Mm -hmm. And individual, yeah, individual change relates to um, especially uh, the work I've done at uh, Search for Common Ground when it came to, uh, to social change and also individual change, like trying to change people's attitude and behavior and knowledge towards, uh, you know, specific issues like of governance, democracy, etc. So that's, that's uh, you know, there's a, a lot of things that pops up in my mind related to Black Pass work. Yeah, no, no, historical context is, um, it's something that it's quite important to do in a social change program in terms of at the design phase of these programs. That's something like it's quite important to have people working on design of programs that have a, a deep knowledge of historical context in the country they want to put in place an intervention. So this is something that is um, used sometimes a little bit too quickly because we tend to uh, rely on the knowledge of uh, people in the field and some people in the field, but sometimes it requires also like uh, to have a broader view of the historical context to understand like recent events and especially understand like the interactions between different stakeholders that we want to work with. And uh, I think it's it's really um, something that needs proper time to proper uh, documentation. The problem is that it's, we don't have time in general and we don't have like necessarily like it's it's a huge effort if you want to do this properly like to like just to document the historical context so i think it can be a trap to to be stuck in a, you know in that phase like rethinking too much about the design phase of the of a program but i think it's quite important especially working in peace building context because you need to have that you know, a good understanding of the, the like events and what caused these events, like to to really get into the real relevant root causes of those of those events. Yeah, the uh, I remember that in in uh, peace building, understanding those narratives that are critical to the project or the issue that you're trying to address is important. Otherwise, there's so much to work on and you could get overwhelmed, but like understanding what are the narratives that are really key that I need to work on is important. But you're right, often we don't have time. The design um, phases of a project are short. In some organizations, they're participatory and others, they're not as participatory. And also, you know, when, and when thinking about the project cycle loop, uh, the lack of, uh, we don't use as well as we could, um, evaluations of the previous projects in previous, in the same context. It comes back again to the use of evaluation, especially the, the final evaluations to really inform new programming. I don't know if it's a question of timing. They just don't get there on time or they were not set up to be utilization-focused writ large, not within the program, but within the, the larger context in that country. I don't know what it is, but there's there's a missing link between past evaluations and new project design. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's something I've encountered quite almost, I would say, systematically, is that the use of evaluation in general is quite disappointing, is quite low. And what happens a lot is that even though, which is not the case all the time, which is like pretty rare, even though like the main stakeholders are people in charge of implementing a code, managing the, the, the program and the, the key stakeholders, 
even though they want to use, they think they give importance to, to the evaluation and its findings. Even in that case, they not necessarily have the time to use and to reflect on the evaluation. So, because what happened is that people, either there's a second phase of the program after the evaluation, and they pretty much have to continue like to avoid any break between like the two phases. So they, it's pretty much like already uh, set in stone or it's the end of the project and that's it. And, uh, you know, it's pretty rare that people would use that evaluation to design a similar programs later on. So it's the way we like the development organization are working. It's difficult to have that period of time where you can actually reflect between two phases of a program or, you know, or sometimes there's too much time between similar programs that could use each other's I mean, that you use previous results of an evaluation. So that's something that I face very, very often, quite a lot. Totally agree with that. Mm, yeah. And that's why maybe, you know, um, approaches like Michael Quinn Patton's developmental evaluation, where evaluation is embedded within the implementation of the program, where you're actually learning as you go along, as, you know, change emerges and you adapt to the context, etc. Maybe that has more impact on use of information that's emerging, of knowledge that's emerging about the program, about the context, about how the different participants, beneficiaries, whatever you call them, are interacting with the project as they're being exposed to them, right? Because especially in these kind of contexts, who you are and how you do things is as important as what you do. <laughs> yeah, yes. It's like, also, like structurally, it's hard like to have this, you know, this like a, a smooth uh, feeding of the information findings of the evaluation to that process because of the turnover of people. It's something also that even in like big organizations, they move on to other positions, even if they stay within the organization. And that's something also that make it a little bit difficult to choose that. But I agree with you. I rarely saw like a proper settings where you have like a user-based design evaluation. I mean, sometimes they mention the principle of, you know, we're going to do this and they try to implement according to, to patterns, guidelines. But in reality, it becomes like just uh, wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I was going to say, maybe they're afraid. <laughs> I'm just thinking out loud here. Maybe they're afraid of what they'll see. And it brought me to efficiency. And it's on there, it says optimal use resources, right? And so maybe, you know, I'm thinking that maybe, you know, there's this fear of failure just generally, right? But I'm more into a proponent of like fail, fail fast, do it, try, because we don't control anything. We have a vision for a change, for a project of how it will be implemented, how it's going to be deployed, etc., and what possible changes will arise. But really, we know nothing. We don't control the situation. When COVID, no one was expecting COVID. And all of a sudden, everything stopped. And that we hadn't planned, of course. All projects at the time didn't have that in their risks and assumptions. <laughs> that there'll be a world pandemic where we'd have to stop. So maybe sometimes we're afraid of saying that we failed. We tried something, we didn't get it right. It wasn't because it's linked to use of resources. And I'm thinking because you want to make sure that you get that other projects are funded within your organization in the country, but then for the organization in other countries as well. I don't know. I'm thinking out loud. Is that why evaluation is not really used as it should be? It's used more as a kind of a, you know, 
checks and balances rather than learning uh, for learning purposes. Yeah, I think it's like evolution is a key process in learning, especially when it deals with a social change program or, you know, we've mentioned also like peace building program earlier. And the tricky thing with the efficient criterion is that, you know, you have like a different uh, timelines in terms of what you expect from program to be able to do with a certain amount of resources. And I think it's like many donors tend to be a little bit like looking for a magic bullet and you can't have like the same approach, the same way of, you know, monitoring and evaluating programs when it comes to, uh, you know, development versus humanitarian and things that you want to see, like things that work or not. Does that program work or not? I think it can be quite dangerous because sometimes you invest money and you don't get the result. And for instance, in peace building, you have to think differently. Some donors, just a few donors, like more people inside some like donor organization, they advise more that you have to think about portfolio rather than like a specific program. And because it's in peace building, you're going to have like things that are not going to work, even if they work in different contexts, in another kind, in a similar context. And you try this and it doesn't give the, the same result because there are so many factors that can, that can like influence the result. So you have to think in more in terms of portfolio and in the same way for efficiency, you'll provide resources. You won't look at efficiency the same way, like if by individual program, but more at a portfolio in a, in a specific region or country and look at that that way, because there, there will be programs that will not carry out a lot of impact and there will be programs that will be, you know, sometimes you just don't see the connections between different interventions and if they happens at, you know, in the same time window. So I think it's a, quite an interesting perspective for me, like to think about a portfolio of, of programs and projects uh, rather than like trying to evaluate things individually. Yeah, because it's um, it's a very interesting way of, of seeing it because the portfolio assumes that you're coming, you're addressing the problem in different ways. If you say portfolio, then you're working at macro level, meso level, micro level, individual change. So there are different ways to address a problem which is quite interesting. And it's not as forceful and gives more space for people to do real work and adapt to the changing context. They're not as attached to the compliance measures for that specific project, but like see it. And also in a, in a multi-phase program, you, you're going to have, if you take like sometimes like the, the, you know, the analysis, the financial, the efficiency analysis from a financial point of view, you know, sometimes in some programs, especially related to policy change, you will have to invest if they're not, you know, strong enough at the beginning of a project, you will have to invest in relationship building with, uh, with, uh, you know, different institutions and, and policymakers, et cetera, and like different um, actors that can influence like a policy. So this part is like you have to make some investment at, uh, at beginning, you know, onset at the, at the programs that will run for a long time. And that you expect at the end of, uh, you know, like several cycles, maybe you'll get the change that you expect. But this is, and if you, if you take the efficiency uh, criterion, the way we use it, you, you might think that, okay, the benefits versus the cost is not worth it. So we're going to discontinue this program. But in fact, it's, it's an important phase, like to build relationship. Sometimes it doesn't cost much, but sometimes you have like to, to, to invest more, uh, more time. And in terms of HR, that's the real cost that comes to build relationship. And uh, yeah, that's why like efficiency for me is a little bit, sometimes a little bit tricky. I mean, it's like programs that are funded by um, FCO, they, they systematically ask for, 
you know, uh, um, value for money uh, analysis. But I think it's the way also you can analyze this money for value and, and take, you know, enough perspective in a, in a, like a larger timeline, longer timeline. I think it's, uh, hopefully like the donors don't, don't take this uh, to the letter, let's say. Yeah. And I think it's also about defining, agreeing with the donor. What does efficiency mean for you in this context with this kind of project? Yeah. Same question goes with, uh, with the impact. Exactly. What does impact mean? I, <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, some of the work that's been done, for example, at Search for Common Ground using like doing track two diplomacy and things like that, just getting people around the table was yeah, actually a result. Well, yeah, These people never talk to each other. And so the process of getting them around the table is where the work is. That they get to the table, you control nothing, right? Once they get into the table, yeah, on the, around the table, you control nothing. So for us, it's defining efficiency, defining impact, defining results with the donor is critical. Like sitting down and really talking about what it is that they're expecting for you to achieve within the timeline that you have. And then what you can uh, really achieve. So that's interesting. Jérôme, could we speak a little bit about your experience of measuring or I'm going to say measuring and then I'll, I'll qualify it individual change, right? Because it's always been hard to show change in these kind of social transformation projects, demonstrate change on a wide level, right? Across a very large sample, you know, beyond the surveys that we use, you know, knowledge and attitude surveys, etc. Beyond that, that I have issues with. Beyond that, like the breadth. When I introduced you, I talked about how you you were interested in the stories of change, right? Storytelling about, you know, evaluations that actually tell us a story. The storytelling, the, the real interesting, nuanced, perspective on individual change happens with case studies, with smaller samples. You pick uh, some outliers maybe and say, okay, why did this person change? Why did this person not change? But it's very small. It's not something that you can apply across a sample of, say, a whole community or a whole region that you worked on. Could you speak a little bit to that, some of the challenges and that you've encountered measuring individual change? Yeah. One of the common things that I've noticed when it comes to measuring, like um, understanding and measuring like a change of attitudes and knowledge and behavior is that uh, there's a lot of limitation using survey for that because you get like the, you know, what is like the socially acceptable responses in terms of attitude. So people are not very authentic. And also you can measure some like attitude change and they can be like, you know, validated. But we also tend to think that increases in, you know, acquiring certain knowledge and will change almost in a linear way your attitude and then you'll, it will, this, this attitude will uh, bring about behavior change. And I think it's like, just to talk about measuring that it's, we don't look at other factors like, you know, locus of control and in terms of behavior change and like attitude is only one dimension uh, when it comes to behavior. There's like a lot of other factors that uh, intervene in that. And attitude is to me like a, the more with a, like in hindsight, it's like something that is not as important as we think. And uh, yeah, knowing also that the way people report, like answer about their own attitude in questions that are, are can be like just socially acceptable responses on certain topic is quite, it's quite obvious. And it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, that's, uh, that's something that is uh, quite challenging. It does like from a more technical point of view, it's also 
also quite hard when you have to measure small change in attitude. You need like a really big samples. Let's say, for, especially when you try like to have like a significant change in attitudes, going from like 90% to 90% or like it's almost impossible in terms of the means we have to have like the enough survey responses to have like, um, you know, statistically significant response. So that's one thing. I think the other, I truly believe that, yeah, like measuring behavior, it's when you, you want, like, you know, to generalize, you need like quantitative data, but observation is quite the most important. The, the very, if you really want to have something that is closer to the truth, like observation is quite, is very important. I think what is also quite fascinating about measuring attitude is I, I think like the most interesting results for me were was doing like more qualitative work, like focus group discussions about a behavior and attitude change. And I think the way, one of the like very interesting one I did was actually with Search for Common Ground, we had like a de-radicalization, part of a de-radicalization program of the British government in Indonesia. And they were doing, you know, life skills, conflict management training and other type of training in prisons, in Indonesian prisons. And we had like a really interesting focus group that were well set up. And we took the time like to do this the right way. And it was very interesting like to, to understand how people like in prison with very little agency on their own with the trainings and like some practices, they would like change their behavior towards. Uh, first, they would change their, their, their attitude towards like the sense of responsibility. And they would take some activities, some work like, you know, related to prison management itself or like prisoners management, they would take responsibility. They would, they would come forward and uh, try to practice a few things. And it was very interesting to capture that, to capture with their stories to get with little details what they would behave and like kind of activity participating in, in group activities in the prisons, they, how they were, um, you know, they were using the skills they had. Even though in terms of attitude, the attitude also that they were explaining is that, yeah, we actually didn't learn that much. That's, these trainings were, were things that we already knew. And in fact, it's, you know, that's interesting because it's tricky. You, you can have a, a, a change of attitude that's like more objective from like a measurement point of view. And also the way they report on their own, you know, knowledge, acquiring, acquiring knowledge. They were, they had like this attitude of we knew already this. It, it was quite interesting to see the, the contrast between the two. Mm -hmm. So the problem was knowledge. Again, it's about understanding who it is that you're working with. The problem wasn't knowledge. They knew all along. The problem was what they did with that knowledge and how, you know, the attitudes they had because something else was more important than the knowledge. Something else was swaying them. So it was working maybe on that other thing as well. And even, even though they had that knowledge, it's like, even though they were not completely, you know, yeah, they didn't realize necessarily that they were like learning skills, but also like the fact that, you know, they realized that they had that knowledge or they have this with them as something that can be useful. It triggers some change in their attitude. I think just the fact sometimes, even though they don't learn a lot in terms of knowledge, the fact that they, they go through this process, like this training and interaction with others, it triggers for them like, yeah, but in fact, I have this knowledge. It's like a knowledge that's something I can use in different situations. So even though they knew these basic things or they pretend to knew, it gave the fact that they were putting that situation like triggered like a chain in attitude. And I know it's quite interesting to, to observe. Mm. 
So, Jerome, in hearing you, I saw the importance, I can see the importance of qualitative tools to get more of the depth and understand better how change happens, right? What are the obstacles to change, etc. And the card that I drew without you knowing is the push-pull factors. So here it says on the cards, the forces that drive away from or draw you to. So what's actually pushing and pulling in terms of better measuring? We've spoken a little bit about that, but why aren't we doing more qualitative, investing more into those tools if they tell us more in terms of uh, depth and understanding? They bring that more. Why aren't we using more of that? What are the you know, push and pull factors that, uh, that affect that? I think it's, oh, well, there's a, the first things that come to mind is that the, like one of the pulling factor, I think is it requires like a lot of time, like to do qualitative work that's going to be very used. I think the way, like the practice is that qualitative approach is associated like with cheap evaluation. You have to do something quick and for little money. And so we're going to go for, you know, a few qualitative interviews, do focus group, et cetera. And it's in general, unfortunately, that uh, that's something in those evaluation, which are like quite very common that, you know, you have like three months or even less to do like a quick evaluation at the end of a program. And so that you just want to do a little bit of qualitative. It's going to be, it's going to be quicker. It's going to be less money. And it's associated with like, I think, unfortunately, it's associated, it's associated with low quality. I think what would be interesting to do is probably evaluate less, less things, uh, less programs, uh, even though, and having some, because sometimes some donors can have a, like a long-term partnership with implementing an organization. And um, especially when it comes like to, you know, you, you deal, you give money to UN agencies and they, 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 they work with partners, like implementing partners and so, so th- sometimes they have like longer term that you can have like longer term partnership. And in, in that case, you, again, having this idea of thinking about portfolio of programs rather than like specific programs is instead of evaluating systematically each program with low resources and doing bad, like very meaningless or not so useful evaluation for each program. It could be interesting to do more like evaluation that are like very solid research in it, almost like a research, but with specific programs or, you know, across, across a, a, like a topical, um, doing a topical evaluation or even uh, a meta evaluation. And that's where uh, qualitative work can be very interesting, like to go deep in those, um, in those evaluation and, and understanding better, like the factors, especially when you, when it deals with social changes. And I think the qualitative work is, is essential in understanding, you know, what brings social change. Of course, it doesn't mean that you, I mean, if you evaluate, if you do those big evaluation, the quantitative part has to be, can sometimes it's necessary to be quite important as well, if you want to, you know, generalize and especially like measuring some type of, of impact. But in the, in our line of work in like more social change programs, it's, it's quite complicated to get that. Yeah, true. Although I was going to say that, although that I'm, I'm seeing actually great potential with AI. We've seen in the last 10 years quite a development in qualitative analysis software. So it's not so much, again, I think, again, it's not so much that qualitative tools or focus group is kind of that like bad or quick and cheap kind of evaluation. It's actually the toughest because the analysis process is 
much heavier than quantitative. You have to agree another moment of kind of thinking, sitting down, what is it that's important to us so you can label things correctly, etc. So qualitative softwares have evolved quite a bit in the last 10, 15 years. And then you also have now AI, if used correctly, can really help kind of bring depth and bring back qualitative uh, or narrative, right, uh, feedback into the foreign and, and give it an, an equal footing so we can manage more data. Because the tricky thing is we collect so much data and quantitative data, but we don't analyze all of it. We Some of it is is left to the side, which is where. So, um, so I'm seeing, you know, I can hear that as being a pull factor, that it's not helping. But I think that with new technology, actually, uh, we could we could really make a headway in that. Yeah. And you need also like you need to actually have skilled researchers to do proper like good qualitative work. It's something I think it's one of the you know it's, it's really tough. You need like very good skills like within as you collect the data themselves, like doing the collection process as well. You need to be very good at not accompanying the conversation without bias and getting the the rich the rich data. Otherwise, it, it requires skills. Honestly, it's very hard. Oh yeah, a focus group facilitator is. Uh... Is one of the toughest uh, jobs, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, with these words, <laughs> we're gonna close the uh, the the conversation. Thank you so much for your time, for your insight, Jérôme, for sharing some of your experience, some of your thoughts. I'll have to invite you again so we can talk about innovation <laughs> a bit <laughs> sure. later uh, down the line. Thanks a lot and be well. Thanks to you. See you soon. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Rethink's Social Change Podcast. I hope you got a lot of value and actionable insights from today's show. Would love if you take a minute to leave us a review. And if you work on social change and are up for the challenge, reach out. And before you go, be sure to subscribe so you're the first to know when we release a new episode. Till then, be the change.